Good morning, Gospel Community Church. How are we today? Good. Excellent. It's good to gather in the house of the Lord. Amen. Be reminded of his mercies to us. They are great. They are marvelous. And we are overwhelmed by his goodness to us. Uh, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. For those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Ben Hurd. They let me be the pastor around here, the senior pastor that is. And we're so grateful that you've joined us if you're new. Um, we are in the book of Acts and we have been for the last several weeks. And we are heading into a very complicated discussion this morning. Now, I don't know about you, but growing up, my parents had the knack for knowing when I was about to do something very stupid. Anybody have parents like that? Like, they walked in at the, kind of the right time in one sense, but the wrong time for you. Uh, I remember a time that uh, we had a piece of, uh, kids don't listen to this and do not repeat this at home, I got to say this. A uh, piece of metal siding had fallen off a little shed that we had. And I got the idea of like, what would it what would happen if I set that thing on fire? Like, could, could, it, could it burn? And so I went and grabbed the gas can. I was like 12 years old or maybe even younger than that. So no ideas, Isaac. <laughs> and uh, I, get, I go get a lighter. And I'm getting ready to do it. And guess who comes out right at that time? Yep, my dad. My dad comes out right at that time, stops me from doing something stupid. Who knows what I would have done if that would have carried on, or the time when I stole a pack of gum from, I think I might have shared this story with you guys, stole a pack of gum from the store, and just as I was getting ready to take a piece at home, my mom walks in and busts me, and I got to go apologize. It was an embarrassing situation, but there are people, yeah, other people I have in my life too, yeah, you have those people where, like, you, you can't stare them in the eye, because if you do, you know that they are piercing your soul, and they know exactly what you did, like, you did something wrong. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Gospel City Church, that, that, this is the church that planted us. There's a pastor by the name of Nathan Scroggins there. And he is their soul care pastor. And he's one of those guys where, like, he, I just, it was, he just knew what was going on in your life without you saying it. And so anytime I would catch eye to eye, I would just start confessing sin. I'm like, yes, I did drive five miles over the speed limit this week. I did leave the toilet seat open. That was me. It wasn't my kids. Uh, we have those moments, right, where, like, we just can't get away with it. And, and that's a good thing. But when we look at the scriptures today, we're going to come face to face with this reality, this understanding that we need to have. And it's this. Be sure your sins will find you out. Be sure God knows everything that you're doing. He is aware of what you are hiding from everyone else. God knows. And sometimes consequences can be devastating. And so let's jump in to our passage this morning. I'm going to start reading. You can follow along with me. Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, 
who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately. She fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words to read. Some that can lead people astray because they don't understand your judgment against sin. Lord, your holiness. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to have a proper understanding of what we are to take away from this, Lord. There's some serious things for us to consider. And so I pray for help, Lord, that I'd be faithful to the text, Lord, that you would remind me of everything that I need to say, keep me from saying what I shouldn't, Lord. And I pray that you would illuminate us, that you'd open our eyes to see what we need to see, our ears, that we would hear, our hearts to perceive, Lord, how we need to change today, what we need to think differently about, Lord. We need your help. And so we come before you and acknowledge how desperate we are for you, especially in light of such a serious story, God. I pray that you'd help us, Lord. Thank you. For your word, thank you for your spirit that you give us, that leads us, Lord. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, up to this point, it's been nothing but encouraging reports from what is going on in the church. Miracles have taken place. Thousands have repented and believed in Jesus. The only negative things that have come their way were from outside the church. Recently... Peter and John were imprisoned because of their bold proclamation of the resurrected Jesus. Remember, they healed the lame man. That's what started it all. And they were a threat to these religious leaders who wanted them to stop and wanted, them, wanted their peace and didn't want to shake things up within 
the, the living amongst the Romans there. And so they wanted them to stop. They arrested them. Ultimately, though, we know that they released them from prison. And they went back. Peter and John went back and told their brothers and sisters in Christ what had taken place, all that they had done, what had happened in light of healing this man and proclaiming Jesus. And as we saw last week, that they immediately began to pray. Isn't that awesome? I love that. That they didn't go and strategize on how are we going to work about this. The first thing they did is hit their knees and realize, Lord, we need you. We need you. They immediately went to prayer. And we saw that they prayed back God's word to him. They were praying biblically, correctly, as Aaron mentioned. They praised him for his sovereignty. And they, it looked very different than the way a lot of us pray. Doesn't it? Sometimes, if, if I'm honest, that prayer is a different prayer than what I sometimes pray. I mean, think about it. They were imprisoned by the people who were responsible for the death of Jesus. And they were doing it because of proclaiming Christ. Certainly no one would blame them if their prayers were about safety. Lord, protect us. If their prayers were about deliver us from our enemies. No one would sit here today and say that was a bad prayer. And yet that was not their prayer. Look again at verse 27 of chapter 4. Truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see their understanding of the sovereignty of God and what was taking place? They understood who was in control. And listen to what they asked for. And now, verse 27, verse 29, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. No mention here of, Lord, protect us. Lord, keep us alive. Rather, they're saying, don't let what happened to us keep us from being bold about the message of Christ. That is amazing. And in verse 32 and following, we see those prayers being answered. Look again, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, and the, the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. What we see here, we see believers who are giving us a picture of what it looks like to live a gospel-centered life. And in verse 32, we see here that a gospel-centered living leads to unity. Gospel-centered living leads to unification of the body of Christ. It says here that they were of one heart and one soul. This is really a common theme that we have seen, right? All throughout the book of Acts, we've seen this unity, this unified movement of these believers in Jesus. This is a 
tight group of people. And when you consider that there have been tens of thousands of people who have been converted to Christ, and there is this unity, that is a staggering reality. Something that I long to see in our world is the unification of God's people. Not just of individual churches being unified, but the, the universal church, those who have genuinely repented and believed that Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that there would be unification amongst us. May God do that. There was great unity here in them. And what exactly does Luke mean when he says they were of one heart and soul? What does that mean exactly? Well, what he's implying here is that, first of all, they were unified in relationship. They were doing life together. They were of one heart. They loved one another. They had deep affections, as we can clearly see. They have deep affections for one another. On top of that, they were united in purpose. They were going after the same thing. They didn't just come together and have a good time. They didn't just come together and say, hey, let's have a cookout. We're going to have some blow-ups, which we're going to do next week, by the way. Uh, they didn't just do those things and love each other and kind of cling to themselves. No, they had a mission. They were all about taking the gospel to the world, right? The whole point of the, the book, the, what we've just labeled the book of Acts is to the end of the earth. The purpose of the apostles and of the disciples and the followers of Jesus was to take the gospel to the end of the earth. They were united relationally and they were united in purpose. There's a lot to be said when we move in unison together in the same direction, isn't it? It got me reading some things and I came across, uh, I, I can't remember who had mentioned it, but like think of snowflakes. You ever have like, you ever try to like get a, glimpse of snowflakes, like have it land on your hand, and just to see the uniqueness of all the snowflakes, and there's not a single snowflake that is identical to another, but how quickly does that snowflake disappear on your hand? Isn't it gone like that? So fragile, but yet you get a bunch of snowflakes that fall together, and all of a sudden we know here in northern Indiana that, that snow begins to pile up and could become a huge massive thing. That's what happens when we come together alone. We are weak and fragile. We are, we are susceptible to other things that can come along and destroy us. But when we come together, where two or more are gathered in your name, God is with us. And that is a cord that cannot be easily broken. God moves through his people. God didn't save us individually so that we can go about our own business by ourselves and have our own relationship, just me and Jesus. That's not the way God intended it. Yes, there's this personal relationship we have with Jesus, but it is intended to be lived out in community. And so when we think about gospel-centered living, when we understand what Jesus has done for us, we understand that there's unity amongst those people. But we also see this. Not only does gospel-centered living lead to unity, it also leads to generosity. It also leads to generosity. And here we see in verses 32 through 37 this extreme generous giving. Not one of them looked at their stuff as though it belonged to them, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. Isn't that amazing? 
Like there was nobody who was like, hey, guys, I'm starving over here. Sorry. God loves you. Go about, go get a job. Like they were providing for people. And this, is, this was not like going to get groceries. This, this was not just like making meals because there was a birth that happened. It wasn't like going to help with like yard work because it's become too much. Now, those things are wonderful things. And for some of us, that is the sacrifice you can make. I'm not downing that, but I'm just showing here that some people went even further than that beyond what maybe many of us would be able to. They were selling their property and their land and giving it to the apostles in order to distribute to those who had need. These were a very generous people. Now, where, where does this generosity come from? How does someone become so generous to be able to say, you know what, this stuff? Now, here's what we have to understand. Back then especially, the property that they owned was very much a part of their identity. They viewed their, their personhood as, as what they owed. And so they were saying, I, I'm nothing I'm nothing, take my property, take my identity. The things that the world will put their identity in, they're saying, take it because all I need is Christ. Christ was enough for them. So what leads a person to be so generous? How does one get to a place of such sacrifice? Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great Grace was upon them all. The reason why many of these people were so sacrificial, so generous, is because their hearts had been so impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They understood that what had happened just a several weeks beforehand, when Jesus was hung on a cross, the reason why they were on the cross was because of their sin. It was their sin that hung Jesus on the cross. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. And as they looked and remembered what Jesus had did for them, taking the punishment that belonged to them, and in place giving him, giving them his righteousness, they were overcome. You see, here's the thing about generosity. Generosity is not something that can be forced upon people. This is not some form of socialism, as some people might want to pull the scripture out and say, say we should be socialists. If you have too much, you should sell it, and everybody should be on the same page financially. That's not, that's not anything what this is saying here. This is not about socialism, but about forcing people. Nobody was forcing them to sell their property. Rather, they were overcome with the grace that had been given to them, that great grace was overflowing them, and they couldn't help but be generous. It wasn't like they were, oh, fine, I guess I'll sell the stinking property. Here you go. No, they were like, hey, I'll sell my property. Take it all. Give to those who have need here. I don't need to be the one distributing. Apostles, you are aware, more aware of what's going on in the body than I am. Take it and give to who has need. And I'm not concerned about it because this is what God has called me to do. And in light of God's generosity to me, how could I not help but give back to him what he has, what he has given me already. They understood that what they had wasn't really theirs to begin with, right? Everything that we have is a gift from God. They understood their possessions belong to the Lord. Generosity comes from a changed heart. 
cannot legislate generosity. And here we have an amazing example. We give a name of a guy who did this very thing, Joseph, verse 36, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas. He was given this name, son of encouragement. He sold the field and gave all the money to him. Now, that's kind of a weird way to say it. Like, when you say son of, that usually in our culture is does not followed by something pleasant. <laughs> son of, what they mean by that, son of encouragement. What son of means, it's like somebody who is a basketball star. You might call him Mr. Basketball, right? Or, you know, somebody who's very good. That's what it means. Son of is a, is a title that gives uh, is to somebody who's very good at something. And Barnabas was excellent at being an encourager. He was one. We, this is not the last that we'll see of Barnabas here. We're going to see him further down the line. And he was very much a support to Paul, as we will see. He is one that understood the gospel. He understood what Christ had done for him. And so he brought this field, sold it, and gave the money to the apostles. As we think about the gospel-centered life, it begs us to ask the question, do I see these characteristics in me? Have I been so impacted by Jesus' death and resurrection for my sin that leads me to be someone who strives for peace within the body, strives for unity? That doesn't mean that we don't have to confront one another. It doesn't mean that we don't have conflict. It doesn't mean that we agree on everything per se, but we agree on the main thing, right? We understand the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, and we are on board with those things. You know, even when I think of Gospel Community Church, our church here, like, you know, our call for membership, but the call is like, and what I would challenge each and every person is that everybody needs to come to a place where they can say, this is a church that I agree with. My prayer is that everybody here, if you don't have a home church already, would find a church where you could say, I agree with the focus of this church. I agree with the direction of this church. I understand that the leaders are faulty because they're human. <laughs> they're going to make mistakes, but we, all, we are generally headed in the right direction. Therefore, I am going to strive for unity amongst the body. Another question, are you a generous person? Are you one who, here, here's what happened, here's what happened when the gospel affects us. All of a sudden, you know, as Americans, I think especially, we, we hold so firmly on our stuff. Like we want our stuff and we don't want to let go. Even when Christ changes us, we still have this thing. But the more we understand the gospel, the more our grip on possessions opens up and we're like, Lord, do what you want with what you've given me. Now this doesn't mean, this is not like, what, what is not being said here is that you must not be rich. You must not have anything, <laughs> any possessions. You must not have anything extra. It's not saying this. It's just saying understand that what you have is, is God's gift to you and he wants you to use it for his glory. And that may mean you let go of it. But that's what happens in gospel living is that we let go of possessions. But here's the other thing that happens. With people, all of a sudden we realize that we need people and our grip on relationship becomes stronger. We let go of our possessions. We cling to the relationships because we understand that we're stronger together. We're going to make more of an impact for the gospel when we are together. Are you one who looks to bring unity 
Are you one that looks to be generous, understanding that what you have is God's gift anyway? Unfortunately, things are going to take a turn for the worse here because it's going to move from being troubles from without the church to being troubles from within. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here we have a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Like Barnabas, they too have property that they sell. And who would agree this was a generous gift? I, I totally agree. They had this property. They sold it. They gave some of it. They gave part of it to the church. Very generous. There's nothing wrong with what they've done here in the act of like, here's some money that we sold property and made from it. That's not the problem. What a generous gift this was. Fantastic. But the problem is their hearts responded differently than Barnabas. And they conspired to keep back some of the profit they made from the sale. And they told Peter that they had sold it for actually a lesser amount than what they really did. But Peter here, Peter through the work of the Holy Spirit is on to their game. And he knows what's going on here. And he meets them head on. First, Ananias. And Peter goes after him right away. And we see in verse in verse 4, that they were under no obligation to sell. Look, verse 4, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And so that's why I say it's not about like we have to sell everything. Again, it's not about that. It's about being honest. It's about being generous as God calls you to be generous. Once they receive the money, they still don't have to give it to him. But he had allowed Satan to deceive him into being self-centered. They weren't gospel-centered. They were self-centered into everyone's shock. Ananias, except for maybe Peter, Ananias falls dead to the ground. And he's carried away. And as was custom, they buried him right away. And seemingly, from the passage, we, there's no reason to believe that Sapphira was aware of what was going on. And so three hours pass, and in comes Sapphira. And Peter actually asks a question, giving her an opportunity to repent. <laughs> Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. She had the opportunity to repent and come clean. But she was living such a self-centered life that she lied just as her husband did. And just like her husband, Sapphira falls dead before Peter. Certainly this is a sobering story, one that is hard to swallow. But in it, there are some observations that we can take away from this. The end of Acts 4 shows us what the gospel-centered life looks like. And here in chapter 5, we see 
self-centered living. And self-centered living leads to, first of all, dishonesty. First of all, dishonesty. The problem was not that they didn't give all of the money to Peter. That was not the problem. The problem was that, was that they agreed, we're going to give you the full price of the house. And so they're telling everybody, hey, we sold it for, we're selling it and we're giving it all to the church. But they didn't give it all. In fact, they would have been better off if they wouldn't have sold the property at all. They would have still been living. Where they went astray is that they lied. They were dishonest about what they had actually sold the property for. It's hard to know. Like, what were they thinking? What had taken place to lead them to do this? Perhaps they observed Barnabas giving to the apostles and they saw how they treated him and they gave him a cool nickname. Or, like, well, I want a cool nickname. <laughs> Perhaps they agreed to sell it all, but then maybe they made more money than they realized they would. And they're like, well, man, I, like, the church doesn't need that much. Like, certainly I could keep some of this to myself. Maybe Ananias, without talking to Sapphira, was like, oh, yeah, we're going to sell this property. And then Sapphira finds out and she's like, what? You're not doing that. Or maybe vice versa. But nonetheless, they have this money in their hands. They sold this property and they lie. They're dishonest with Peter and what had happened. They were self-centered. They were living for themselves. And this is what happens, right? We will do everything that we can to protect ourselves when we are living for ourselves. Even if it means being dishonest. And before we are quick to judge them, consider your own heart. Have you ever put a decent amount of effort towards something and you just kind of say, you know what, I'm doing enough here. This is good enough. I said I would do a little bit more, but I'm good. and I'm doing far better than so-and-so. This is good enough. That's what happens when we start living for ourselves in our own kingdoms. We find ourselves building our own selves up in our own minds, thinking we're pretty good. We're pretty good. We don't need to go any further. How many of you have been on a diet? Maybe it's been effective. Uh, I've done this over and over again. Lost some weight. Feeling good, and then I'm like, I deserve a cheat day. And cheat day becomes cheat week, which becomes cheat month. <laughs> That's kind of what happens. We, we kind of get, can get comfortable with ourselves. I'm feeling pretty good. I'm going to take it easy. I deserve to just relax and chill. And, you know, I'm re reading through Luke right now, and I came across the passage where it talks about, like, Jesus says, Whoever would follow me must deny himself monthly, deny himself weekly, no, deny himself daily. Pick up his cross, pick up my cross and follow me. The, the Christian life is not one where like we do good enough and, and we've kind of made up for it, right? Like it's kind of like work, I'm going to work hard for a day so I can take tomorrow off. Like that's not the way the Christian life works. And really, our joy will be diminished if that's the way we live our lives. If we give God one day of the week, but we get the other six, like we're going to find ourselves a mess. Not because the rule is you got to live for Jesus every day. The reality is God knows our hearts. And he knows that when we are in tune to his, life goes so much greater for us. 
I'm not saying circumstances. I'm saying the way that we handle everything. Because we've been leaning on God's word and the truth is dug into our hearts. And we're holding firm to his promises so that when the hard things come, because it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous, when those hard times come, we have built up our understanding and our faith of who Jesus is that helps us through those things. But when we are self-centered, we find ourselves being dishonest. And we want to exaggerate, right? The problem that they had was they exaggerated what they had done. They wanted people to be impressed. They wanted people to, to look at them and think, wow, you sold that property. Wow, that's amazing. You gave it all to the church. They were dishonest. Self-centered living also leads to this. It leads to arrogance. It leads to arrogance. It was bad enough that they had conspired to both lie and be dishonest about it, but to be so arrogant that they thought they could pull one over on God. That they could pull one over on God's people. That was a whole new low. You see, in their minds, they were just lying to man. They were just lying to Peter and the disciples. But the reality was they were lying to God. It says it right here. Ananias, verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? They weren't lying to man. They were lying to God. They had suppressed the truth and were arrogant enough to think that they would get away with it. And sin is like that, isn't it? We can get so cocky when we allow it, sin to reign in our lives. We lose our ability to take an honest look at our own lives. And we look for ways we need to get others to like us. And to others accept us. And for give re people reasons to look up to us. And in those moments is when we threaten the very unity that God has called us to live by. Is there not great trust that is broken when we lie to one another? And is it not extremely difficult to make friendships with arrogant people? Have you ever found yourself there and you cross somebody and they kind of walk away and your eyes are open to see your arrogance and you realize, man, that was ugly. Nobody wants to be around an arrogant person and therefore unity can't happen. Generosity is not going to happen out of arrogance. Generosity is not a matter of how much you give. Generosity is a matter of the heart. You remember the, the poor woman who put barely anything in and God said she gave far more than those guys over there. Because it's not about how much you give. It's about the generosity of your heart. Self-centered living makes us arrogant. <laughs> it reminds me of that story I told you about with the siding and pouring the gasoline on it and lighting it to see what happens. My dad came out and said, what are you doing? What do you think I said? Nothing. How arrogant is it for me to think that my dad's not going to smell the gasoline? And so, of course, he's, I, 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 I smell gasoline. What are you doing? I was arrogant to think somehow I could get away with it. But that's what it does. When we allow sin to reign, we lose our minds. We forget the fact that God knows everything. We can lie to one another. In fact, I, I'm, I'm good at discerning written words. I'm not good at discerning spoken words from people all the time. 
Because people can say the right things and then stab you in the back. But God, you're not going to get away with lying to God. He sees right through you, and yet we are arrogant to think that somehow nobody sees us in those things. Now certainly when we hear this story, there are some who are going to question, how could God be a loving and merciful, gracious God and do these things? How could he do that? How is that loving to, why didn't he give him a chance to repent? Certainly God is gracious, merciful, and kind always. And we love that part of Jesus, don't we? We love the lamb part of Jesus. We love the fact that Jesus came, sacrificed himself as loving and forgiving and merciful. But we also, want to, we also need to remember that God, that Jesus is also the lion. He came to defeat sin. He will either defeat sin in you through the cross or by casting you to hell. There's no other way. God is both loving and righteous, holy. He hates sin. Do you realize it? He hates sin so much, that's why he sent Jesus to be brutally murdered. Because he hates it. The truth is God loves the church. He loves his people. And sometimes he will go to whatever lengths it takes to assure the unity of his people. Now certainly, this was a unique circumstance. This was the beginning of the church. And so unity was a major threat. And God is going to say, no, not in my house. It should be sobering for all of us. The self-centered life will lead us to a place of dishonesty and arrogance. And these are a threat to the unity and purity of God's church. So what do we pull away from this passage? What do we take away? How should we respond to such a heavy passage? Here are some few questions for you to ponder this week. How are you contributing to the unity of God's people? Are you one that is looking to build up one another? Or are you looking to poke and prod and find every little tiny thing that somebody messes up on and make sure you make it a big deal and bring in a big fuss and bring disunity? Or are you one that loves people deeply? Yes, you're willing to say the hard thing, but you speak the truth in love. Because you understand that God loves his bride and as God's person, as God's people, as a gospel-centered person, I'm going to love what God loves. Are you one who seeks unity? Are you a generous person? Again, not one. There are generous people who have hardly anything. And there are selfish people who give away a lot. It's not about the matter of how much you give. It's about a matter of your heart. Are you one that has your hands open with your possessions? God, use them as you wish with your time. Use my time as you wish, Lord. Direct me. I will say this. When you look at the, I don't know anything that anybody gives individually. I don't look up those numbers to see how much Joe, Bob, and Frank are giving individually. But collectively as a church, I can say from all that I can see, we are a generous church. Are you a part of that generosity? Are you giving towards the mission of the church? Are you giving to those who you come in contact with who are in need? Praise God for our small groups here. So many stories I've heard of small groups coming and rallying around people in their small groups to provide for them. 
Are, you, are there any areas in your life where you can see self-centered living? Have you seen places where even maybe this week you're telling little lies just to make yourself look a little bit better because you're afraid to, that others might know who the real you is? Let me just encourage you, if that's you, encourage you to go and repent of that. Remember that Jesus didn't come to save those who had it all together. Jesus came to those who humbled themselves, right? Humble yourselves and at the right time he will do what? He will lift you up. Have you found yourself being dishonest because you're trying to protect yourself? Or maybe you've come to find, you're, you're on the other side where you, you're just full of arrogance. You just think you have it all together and you look down at other people and you look at how much you give and you think, man, if everybody could just be like me, we would be a better place. <laughs> if that's you, you have lost track of the gospel. My encouragement for you is look to Jesus who surrendered it all. We will never compare to him. The point isn't for that to crush you in the sense of like go home and, and feel sorry for yourself. It's to crush you in the sense that God is so great and I am just one of his servants. I get to be a part of his people. Now we don't really know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Did they go to hell? Were they just Christians who God disciplined out of love and took them out of misery, took them out of what they would face when the truth came out? Like, we don't know. They very well could be in heaven today. We don't know. But the sobering reality for all of us is, is that God looks at sin seriously. And if you have never repented and placed your faith in Christ, one day the payment for your sin will be hell. And I would lovingly encourage you to consider what Jesus has done for you. We were all on the same path. I wasn't born in this world loving Jesus. God had to rescue me from my sin. I had to repent of my sin and place my faith in him. I encourage you. We'd love to talk with you. We want to talk further about that. But remember, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Be in awe of God this morning. Remember the gospel and allow the gospel to impact your life. Let's pray. God, what a sobering passage. How do you, how do you end, how do you end that? But Lord, the reality is, is you look at sin seriously. It's no joke. We can't look lightly at it. Now, we don't look to not sin to impress you, Lord, but rather we love you and we fear you. We're in awe of who you are, that we just, we have this desire to want to, to please you and live for you. So, Lord, help us. I pray that you would make us a church that is unified because we love the gospel, because we love Jesus, because we've been so impacted by him, that we want to live unified so that, Lord, we can go into the community and the world. That is a picture to the world when the church is unified and we go out and we're loving and they see the unification and the love that we have for another. It's a picture of the gospel to the world. And God, make us generous people. Help us to learn what that means for us. Is it my time? Are there possessions, Lord? It's not about having possessions, but rather do our possessions have us? And Lord, guard our hearts against dishonesty and arrogance, Lord, to think that somehow we can sneak one past you, Lord, because you see everything we do. Lord, let that not lead us to 
being afraid as if we're running away, but rather fear and awe that you would be so merciful to allow us to live, Lord. We should look at the story and think, how could God kill them? We should look at this and be amazed that he allows, that you allow us to live. Oh, Lord, open our minds, remind us, help us to see and taste that you are good, Lord. You have been merciful and gracious to all of us because we are still alive. Lord, thank you that you have not called us to get it all together. But, Lord, you have given us the one who is making us whole, Lord. You are conforming us to the image of your son. God, keep us focused on the gospel. Remind us that our sins will find us out. Lord, let us be a church. Lord, let us be people who deny ourselves daily and pick up our cross and follow after you. And Lord, help us to be faithful to take the gospel to the end of the earth. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand and let's sing this in response.